Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot. And I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable success. Part of the Left Foot GPS growth practice solutions for business development. Go to leftfoot.com GPS for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is his firm's executive partner. He acts for a variety of clients in the areas of privacy, employment, commercial disputes, and litigation. He's worked on several high-profile cases and believes a lawyer in practice is nothing without clients. We'll talk about his practice and his work setting up the Mishkan Academy to help lawyers develop the skills needed in today's modern legal environment. Mishkan Dorea executive partner, James Libson, welcome to Left Foot. Hi, Nicole. It's a great privilege to be on this program. Really looking forward to this conversation. I am as well. Thank you for agreeing to be a guest in our program, James. Let's jump into our questions. Thinking back to before you became as well known as you are today, can you share with our listeners your approach to client acquisition and why that approach was successful for you? I'm not sure I ever had or even have today an approach to client acquisition in that I came into a firm that was already quite a well-known firm, albeit a very small firm at the time, with a very high-profile leader, a man called Lord Mishcon, who was a real giant of the law in the UK at the time, and also a very prominent player in politics and the world of business too. And the firm had a profile through Lord Mishcon and other practitioners in the firm, including a man called Anthony Julius, who remains a colleague, who's a very, very well-known lawyer here. And we had a high profile, and the work came in very much because of the profile. And it also had a culture of very, very jealously and ferociously guarding its clients' interests and making sure that those relationships were well struck and permanent and long and loyal. And that we also had very good relationships with the intermediary communities with which we worked. And I suppose I learned those things, the way in which we looked after clients, the way in which we worked with intermediaries, the way in which we then went and looked for work in those arenas. And also, we had the challenge that we still have today, that being a firm that has a very significant element of its work coming from the private world and the non-institutional world, an awful lot of the bucket has to be refilled with new work every single year. So you can never rest on your laurels and know that, albeit relationships may be long-term and and actually lifetime relationships, uh, they're not relationships that necessarily generate repeat work every single year. There will be life events in the life cycle of a family or an individual that will generate work, but it won't be of a consistent kind. So we're constantly on the hunt. We were constantly on the hunt when we were the 15 partner firm that I joined. Uh, and we're constantly on the hunt now with the 150 partner firm that we now are all getting close to being. So I think those are the instincts that really drive uh, the way in which we go and get work. And we're always looking for it. We're never resting on our laurels. Thank you for that response. So what type of guidance are you giving to the other lawyers in your firm about constantly being on the hunt? What does that look like? Well, I think first of all, first and foremost, it means constantly doing a good job for your clients because most of our work comes by recommendation from our clients and our general reputation in the marketplace from clients and intermediaries. So 
constantly being on the hunt means impressing the clients you're looking after at the moment with the expectation and hope that they will recommend you onto others. It also means participating in all the initiatives that the firm undertakes. We have a very sophisticated business development effort and team, and we're very proud of that. And I think we're properly regarded as one of the leaders in the way in which we present ourselves to the outside world. But that needs substance behind it, and it needs the lawyers to be well behind that effort and also filling in the effort with So it's not just words, but it's content and it's intelligence and the rest of it. So we encourage people to get involved as much as possible with all of the institutional efforts. And we also encourage people to be very entrepreneurial. We like people to build their own business. And we think people build their own business particularly well if they love the environment in which they're working. And I don't just mean the law firm. I mean, they are interested in the things they're going, looking out to go and build. So if you love art and there's a space for you here because we have a sophisticated and well-known art practice. If you love sport, we have a good sports practice. If you love doing just the corporate work, then we love that enthusiasm as well. So we want people to love the work they're doing, but also to love the sphere and sector that they're working in and to enjoy the engagement with the clients. I'm sure many people, while you've been recording your program, have said, the more that you can show interest in your client's affairs, the more they're going to come and want to speak to you and and enlarge that conversation. So we'd like people to really, really be enthusiasts uh, for the sectors in which they work. Absolutely agree. We have heard that. Really enjoying the specific area of focus, really enjoying the specific area of the law, really enjoying the clients that you're working with and what problems they're trying to solve, the improvements they're trying to make all mean something for a lawyer and making that day-to-day more enjoyable. You said you encourage your team to be entrepreneurial. You encourage your associates to be entrepreneurial in their search for clients. What have you seen another lawyer do that you thought was surprisingly successful? I think something that we've seen, which is really interesting over the last few years, young lawyers who've shown patience in the way in which they want to go and build their client base. And they've shown that patience in a very interesting way, which is to work with some of the more senior lawyers in the firm as their associates, but also as the guardians of their office, as it were, their their managers, and working alongside in the slipstream of senior lawyers as a kind of apprenticeship. And this is beyond the training contract. You know, in the UK, or in England anyway, that we have a training period of two years where lawyers go around various departments in the firm and then they qualify into their area of specialism. But on qualification, we've given the opportunity for some young lawyers to work with senior partners in the firm and perform a number of different functions, both the lawyering functions, some of the administrative functions, coming along to meetings, both internal management meetings, but also going out to meetings with senior colleagues in the profession and in industry and really learning the craft by watching and being the gatekeeper to senior people's practice. And we've then seen that turn into a proper acceleration of the development of business in those young lawyers' practices. So we see those people who've invested that time in that type of apprenticeship then accelerate very, very quickly and start with that experience being able to offer wisdom in a way that is beyond their years and build a practice quite quickly. And that's been really interesting for us. And that's almost been accidental in the way that we've constructed it. But because it's been successful, we're now making it less accidental and a little bit bit more programmatic. We've heard a lot about the UK model from the educators we've talked to in the States that there is a real desire to replicate that in the States. We have these lawyers coming out of law school, sitting for the bar that are not prepared 
to be lawyers, right? And so why not create a different environment for them to get some practical experience similar to how our doctors are trained? Definitely have heard great things about the model. We talk about secondment in the States, great working practice, but to really have those lawyers sit with those senior team members and learn from them and really, to your point, become involved in their practice, a great way to train a lawyer about every aspect of the business and the business of law. James, you have a responsibility, right, to the other partners in your firms, those that have a financial interest in the success of the firm and the growth of the firm. You know, have you, when you're replacing that business year over year, what kind of constraints or not even constraints, but what kind of strategy have you put in place? A baseline of things that you do every year that really helps you plan, plan your staffing, plan your business for the year. What does that look like? Yeah, we have a very organized and rigid planning cycle in which we allow the rest of the chaos to flourish. So we're a strange mixture between anarchy and chaos and rigidity. And the planning cycle is very focused. So each of the different businesses, the well, I think we divide ourselves into 16 different businesses. Each of the different businesses has very strict three-year plans that we set. And then we review on a six-monthly basis through that three-year period. And we make sure that we're getting the work in to reach the budgets that we've set for ourselves, that we're recruiting in line with those budgets that we're spending on business development and other costs in line with what we budgeted ourselves. And we're pretty good at making sure that we meet our budgets, both on the, the revenue and spend by constantly monitoring it. We have that in the, the framework of a larger vision. We set a couple of years ago, we went to the firm and said, we're now a firm that is around 150 million pound practice. We've been growing that firm very, very quickly over the last 15 year period in these three year planning cycles. And that's been very good for growth, but it's been a relatively two-dimensional process. Let's actually look at what the nature of the firm is we want to create and look at not a plan, but a vision and try and envisage what the firm is going to look like in 10 years' time. And that was two years ago. So the vision was for 2026. And we went out and we consulted very widely. We consulted with the partnership. We consulted with all the other employees of the firm. We went to speak to people like many people actually who you've interviewed, academics, futurists, people who are looking at industry and said, what is the law firm model, not of the future, but the law firm model that we want to inhabit? And let's set ourselves a vision. And now let's measure ourselves against that vision as well as the, the more rigid planning. And that was a very interesting exercise. It took around a year to do the consultation. And then we wrote quite a long vision document that we're now comparing ourselves to as we go through that 10-year period. And of course, we expect some things to happen and we expect lots of the things that we've spoken about not to happen. But what it allows us to do is articulate what the essence of the firm is going to be and whether that the essence of the firm is going to remain the same throughout that period. And that keeps the core intact. And that's what's very important to us and will continue to be important to us. And it's been a very worthy exercise just for that. Great to hear that you have this thoughtful plan. I mean, we talk to a lot of firm lawyers are working off of prior years plan where they were comparing themselves to a prior year to, you know, the last five years. So that idea of looking forward and really looking at the image of the firm that you want to create and then planning to get to that. You know, we're not hearing that. Congratulations on that because that is significant, right? That is not the way most firms have been responding and responding, especially to the changing conditions and the disruption that's occurring in the legal environment. 
and has been occurring. I think it makes disruption feel a little less disruptive if you've thought about what the disruption may, is going to feel like. It's really, you know, people talk about the law firm of the future and how different it's going to be and a lot of the technology and science that is going to drive it. And when we sit at our desk on a day-to-day basis, one day doesn't feel much different from the day before. And so when you're hearing about how different it's going to be, you don't believe it. But actually, if you thought about it and say, this is the path to which we're going to follow, which is going to lead us to that type of environment, and actually, it feels easier to walk along that path. It doesn't feel so strange because you've actually you've thought about the constituent steps along the way. It has also allowed us to make some brave decisions along the way about investing in other businesses that are linked to the law firm and that, to a degree, a hedge against the change, but also very helpful to the current practice, enhancing the current practice. And now a word from our sponsor, Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning into the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to energize your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will energize your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to the GPS page at leftfoot.com. Post-2008, we had an economic situation that led to the need to look at pricing, the need to look at contract structure. And of course, the need, you know, of course, that has grown since 2008 about the need to look at technology and alternative ways of delivering legal services. So when you look at this plan going forward today, what percentage of that plan is related to possibly those brave decisions and alternative legal services and alternative models and possibly alternative fee arrangements, our other topic, which is client acquisition? How much of that plan is focused in those areas that, of course, are likely differentiators? I'll say two things in answer to that. First of all, for us, even though 2008 was as frightening for us as it was for everyone else, because of the nature of the firm we were, which is a firm principally based in London, tiny office in New York, but principally based in London, we could contain the effects of 2008 perhaps better than others. Also, because so much of our work comes from the private world rather than the institutional world, that world wasn't affected to quite the same degree. And that allowed us to be quite brave during that period and go on investing uh, and investing in business, but also in people that previous to that we perhaps could not have afforded. And that's given us a great launch pad for the ongoing growth since then. When I look at what we're thinking about, we start by thinking about what the nature of the firm is going to be rather than what the types of business we're going to be invested in. And we make sure that the investment decisions are then based on the firm and its core values and the way in which we want to look after clients rather than just being a magpie and looking at attractive opportunities. And if it's not absolutely comes from the core, then we're unlikely to invest in it. So let me give you a couple of examples of what we've done over the last few years. We have a separate 
our exercise in litigation where you reveal your documents is called disclosure. You call it discovery. And we have a separate discovery business where we offer discovery services for our clients, but also for other law firms and other professional bodies that we've invested in. Because we're a very litigation-heavy firm with 60 to 65% litigation, it's a core service for us. It's, we have to invest in the infrastructure for that anyway. So we might as well invest in that infrastructure in a way that looks to the future, that is technologically savvy and can stand alone as well as a business. We have the same with a cyber business as, as well. We do a lot of investigations, both defending and prosecuting investigations for clients. We have a very developed relationship with the investigator community, and we've invested heavily in our own cyber investigation capabilities. That's also a standalone business, can be a standalone business, but it sits at the very core of what we do anyway. So we're looking at business investment decisions that sit outside of the law, very much based on what supports the core and making sure that those decision matrices, we stick to them and we don't overreach ourselves and do things that we don't know enough about because we won't be able to do those well. Looking at it as business, if you have 65% litigation, you have to have the ability to access the information around those cases, why not own and have a more profitable solution to doing that work? So it's a terrific example and one that, you know, of course, we hope firms are looking at because it is a way to really manage the business side of their firm, you know, versus quote unquote, accessing those services from others and paying a profit component of that. How many professionals do you have on your team that are looking at this type of investment. Maybe they're lawyers that have now have more of a innovation responsibility. Are you looking, do you have a team that's really saying, you know what, our task is to look at innovation. How is that structured within your firm? We have different teams doing different things and, and innovation exists in all areas of the firm. So while we have an innovation team that sits within the tech side of the business, and we've just gone through, for example, and it's classic innovation, but we've just gone through the second year of what we call our MDR lab when we get legal technology companies coming to pitch for a joint venture exercise with us. We had, I think, over a few hundred who pitched. We had our day last week when we had had whittled it down to maybe 18 on the shortlist that came into the firm and pitched their ideas in different categories. So some were to do with the business of law some are to do with real estate, some are to do with corporate, whatever it is. And they are all tech solutions. It's the second time that we've done it. Last year, we chose three of the companies to work with. That's all kind of classic tech stuff that a lot of firms are doing. But we also see innovation throughout the business. So I expect innovation, for example, from our HR team in the way in which we are looking after our people, but also be able to take those HR innovations through our labor practice and go out to our our clients that we look after in that market and say, are you interested in this? We're very prominent, for example, at the moment in the gender pay debates that are going on in your country, in this country. We have a reporting cycle that's happening with professional firms at the moment where we have to report gender pay divides. And we do it the same with business development. It may not be a tech-related thing. It may be a relationship-developed thing. We have a business development team that is probably twice the size of what one would expect for a firm of our size. And we expect them to innovate and to be able to go to our clients, our brand owners, for example, we have a very big brand business looking after their intellectual property rights and prosecuting those rights and going and having different discussions with them about the fashion industry, the sports industry, the luxury goods industry, and innovating in, in that environment as well. So we invest heavily in all of those support structures 
But ultimately, the innovation also comes in partnership with the lawyers at the coalface because they have a much, much better idea what is actually going to be attractive to the clients. And uh, it is that partnership between technicians and professionals outside of the lawyering space and the lawyers that look after the clients that in the end uh, produce the best type of interesting innovation that's actually attractive to the, the clients. Collaboration. We're hearing that more and more. There was a terrific book that Heidi Gardner, who teaches at Harvard Law School, she wrote a book on collaboration within professional services firms. When we interviewed her, you know, I was optimistic that her work and the research would really help make change. And she didn't sound as optimistic, <laughs> but I'm glad that people are embracing it because, right, you know, if we can really look to what does collaboration mean in today's environment and then ensuring that we're looking at innovation that way. And of course, the lawyers have to be part of that. So James, of all the things that you're looking at and have looked at in these few years of doing this, what are you seeing out there that you think based on your experiences is truly innovative? The thing I've been most impressed about actually is seeing people who really, really looking into not in the way in which law is delivered, but the way in which law is responding to the changing world and changing industries and industries that perhaps I haven't even thought of. And suddenly you're hearing about them and then you're seeing that law firms have created departments to look after those. And the the one I quote is American law firms who specialize in drone law and aviation and that sort of thing. And Maybe three or four years ago, no one would have thought that that's going to be an area of law that is going to require a department or a firm servicing it. And now it seems obvious. Anyone who's thought about that uh, before it seems obvious to the rest of us, I think is really clever and really impressive. And I've loved watching those sorts of firms spring up as industry changes and as things happen that we haven't even thought of. Who's ahead of the curve on that really impresses me. It's interesting. I was thinking about drone law yesterday because I was interviewing someone who's involved with blockchains and blockchain law and that whole distribution channel and accounting channel. And it is so interesting. Great point. And definitely great for our folks that are starting to pursue a particular niche or a particular area of focus. Definitely want to talk about the work that you're doing in the Michigan Academy and really the teaching that is going on as part of that program. Can you highlight some of the structure of that and what you believe the lawyers that are participating in that academy are are taking away from it? Absolutely. So it all started a few years ago, maybe five or six years ago. We had in the UK, the regulatory environment for learning at the time, it's changed now, was common uh, CPD points, professional development points. You had to just notch up a, a certain amount of hours of learning during the course of the year. And what happened, it happened perhaps less in recent years, but certainly when, when I was learning, is that you'd come to the end of the year and you had to have had your 16 or 24 hours or whatever it was, and you didn't have them. And suddenly the only course available for you was, was shipping law. It had absolutely nothing to do with anything that you'd ever done. And you'd go and do a three-hour shipping law course just to notch up the points. And I was worried that teaching was too formulaic. On the one hand, we weren't teaching the right things to our lawyers, and they were going on courses provided externally or even internally that weren't suited to the practice. And the second, that it was much too narrow, that for a lawyer operating in any law firm, but in particular Michigan Durer, that changes so quickly and is involved in so many different industries and parts of the world, that lawyer needed to know about politics and economics and the business world and the cultural world. And we needed much, much more rounded individuals and that legal training just wasn't delivering that at all. So we thought of the academy where we would have the mandatory legal training, the normal professional development training, 
that was going to be pushed in a way that was much more in line with the way in which the lawyers, but their supervisors as well, wanted to see careers developing. So it would be a consultative, collaborative exercise in deciding how the learning was going to be delivered. And that we would also have an environment in which the lawyers were learning about the things that we thought and that they thought were important in order to make them relevant to their clients. That is a lot of cultural learning. It's a lot about how we look after clients. It's also a lot about the industries in which they operate. A lawyer, as they go through Mishcons, will have all the legal training they need, a lot of the management training that is akin to a a sort of MBA training, and a lot of the environmental training in industries, in technology, in politics, and a lot of fun. So it was academically stimulating. So we go to our clients as well. We have a lot of high-profile clients. We have a lot of interesting clients. We ask them to come into the academy to give one-off lectures. And we've had Hilary Mantel here. We've had Stephen Fry. We do a lot of political work. So we've had a lot of politicians come in and, and speak. And it's really become a centerpiece of the firm. People love it. They're proud of it. And it is also very much part of our 10-year vision. It sits absolutely within the 10-year vision so that it is the tool by which we deliver the skills and knowledge that is going to implement that vision process. And then the final aspect of it is that we hope in time, we're beginning to do it, it will be a publication environment of things of academic legal interest that are of interest to our clients and are of interest to the environments in which we work in, whether it's regulators, whether it's government relations, uh, whether it's policy around uh, the types of issues our clients are involved in. So it's all of those things. That's a big amount to bite off. And we are only scratching at the surface of the capabilities, but we've got tremendous ambitions for it. It's beyond education, right? It's got this multifunction of building an environment for your lawyers where they're working together in a teaching environment where you're creating networking opportunities, having your clients participate. Lawyers that are starting out are getting invitations to participate or come. And then, of course, the next step of being able to publish from there and educate more broadly. It sounds like it's be something that as a young or even mid-career or even seasoned lawyer, you'd want to be involved in because it does create that networking opportunity and the ability to engage with others within the firm in a way that's not solely around work, but more about around the experience of the law. As you look at the topics being discussed there, you know, is there something that you learned that you took away and when you've had the opportunity to participate in one of those academy programs? Absolutely. We had a, a series of sessions about bias and all to do about equality and treating people right. And we had, I think the man was from Harvard. He's, he's a well-known teacher who came in and this was for the partner cohort to make sure that we weren't guilty or we recognized unintentional bias. And we had a very sophisticated set of sessions where partners worked together in relation to it. It was completely enlightening. It was the sort of thing that you then were able to apply to your work environment, but also apply to your life environment. And also when you interact with clients. And so on all fronts, it was helpful and and interesting. And it's also, you know, I get a chance also to talk to the academy, deliver sessions. And that's also still a fantastic and enriching experience. And, And people like that. People like to be able to bring their own passions to the workplace. And we love it when people do that. You're doing a lot as a firm to support the lawyers within the firm, the other professionals within the firm, obviously through this academy, through having a strategic plan, really looking forward in your business. For those that are just starting out, what advice would you have for them? I think it's a time of great excitement and I think you have to love it. 
I think that was that's always been true. It's always been relatively tough. It was a lot less tough, I think, when I started, but it was relatively tough. And you do have to love it. I think if you love the work that you're doing, intellectually stimulated by it, then the adaptability that is going to be required is going to come with that. I go up and down in terms of uh, confidence about the future of the profession, but I'm sitting in a pretty optimistic moment at, at the moment. And I still think there are great opportunities for people coming into the profession. I do think it is going to feel different. I can already see in daily practice, even if I compare it just five years ago or just two years ago, that a load of the skills that young people coming into, well, not necessarily young people, but new people coming to the profession afresh need to have and are acquiring are different from the skills that we learned. And I think that's a great opportunity because in very many respects of what people are doing now, a whole load of the stuff, they are going to be far more skilled, far more quicker than the people who are sitting at the moment in positions of seniority in firms. And I can see moments where people can just accelerate through firms by embracing innovation, by embracing new ideas, embracing those skills that the people who've been around for a long time are going to find much, much more difficult to adapt to. If I was advising people coming into the firm, I'd say, look out for those opportunities. Look out for those moments when you can just accelerate through by embracing skills and techniques and different ways of operating that others are going to have to catch up with you on. Terrific point. And you know, it's interesting, we might want to change our question there because there are so many lawyers that are, like I said, mid-career that are really struggling, right? Because they're having to look back and kind of learn new things and learn new approaches to doing work so that they can be more competitive, you know, where, of course, our new lawyers coming in are, are starting at a different place. So, but good point, good advice to them is they can be part of the team that helps those mid-career and more seasoned folks. They're absolutely things. They're absolutely things nowadays that I simply can't do. And it would be pointless me learning to do because I'm never going to be able to do them as quickly or as efficiently or as intelligently as uh, people who are learning them now. And that's a great opportunity for those people. Absolutely. Absolutely agree. James, thank you. We appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? No, just how much fun this has been. I love talking about um, the law. I love talking about Mishcons and I've never had an opportunity to, to do so in this environment. So thank you very much for the opportunity. Excellent. Thank you. It's been a pleasure having the conversation and we appreciate you being a guest in our program. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time. Oh, 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 oh